Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. We'll be in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 this morning. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, as we look at Peter's instruction to the household. Uh, even as the last uh, week we looked at his instruction to all of us in relationship to our uh, interaction with human institutions, governments that is, and, and servants being subject to their masters. This week we look at what Peter has to say to husbands <clears throat> and wives in particular. With the Lord, uh, Word of God open, let's ask the Lord to help us in our time of study today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do come before you again asking that you would give insight and wisdom that we might understand your word and apply its truths to our hearts. <clears throat> we do ask, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we might see the wonderful things contained in your word, open our ears that we might hear them, and our hearts that we might understand them, that we might live lives fully pleasing to you, Lord, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in our knowledge of God. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. Please take heed how you hear it. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Well, today we come to a passage that has the unfortunate consequence of causing a lot of anxiety in its hearers, especially and often among women of the church. Abuses of passages like 1 Peter 3 and Ephesians chapter 5 have led many women to reject the Bible's instructions for biblical marriage. And likewise, abuses of 1 Peter chapter 3 and Ephesians chapter 5, that other famous marriage passage of the New Testament, have led many men to excuse their domineering or harsh or demanding or abusive or otherwise unbiblical behavior in marriage. And the result is that passages like this one are often ignored by some, feared by others, or misunderstood by the rest. And of course, none of us would say that we simply don't care what the Bible says about marriage. We want to be biblical in our approach to our relationships in the home. But boy, the church has failed to help so many marriages, hasn't it? The divorce rate in the church is the same as it is in the world. And so some have reached the conclusion that perhaps the best thing I can do is pursue my own happiness, and that's all I really have to hold on to. My dear friends, as marriages are falling apart both around us and among us, this text is so important. As in the previous chapter, Peter wants us to live as exiles in this world, not to be like the world and its understanding of marriage, 
but to live as God would have his people live, as citizens of another world, whose relational paradigm within the home is informed by what God would say. And this requires us to have counterpredictable thoughts about marriage, to think in a way other than how our flesh would tell us to think, and not to allow abuses of texts like 1 Peter 3 or Ephesians chapter 5 turn us off to what Scripture actually teaches. Or a similar danger might be that we begin to feel how this passage pushes against our fleshly instincts and how it encourages and compels us to live as exiles in this world, and so we begin to ignore its teaching altogether. When our flesh says personal happiness is paramount and take care of myself and look out for number one, it's no wonder that we begin to ignore the biblical texts that say knowing Christ is paramount and take care of my inner self and look out for one another. And so this morning I want us to think about three priorities in a God-honoring marriage, three priorities that Peter gives that Scripture would have men and women do in marriage for the glory of God and for the good of their own homes. Number one, Scripture would have us prioritize knowing Christ as most important. Number two, Scripture would have us prioritize God's sight over mankind's sight. And number three, Scripture would have us prioritize equality of persons in the home. Peter speaks to wives first in this text, doesn't he? And just as a, a brief aside, oftentimes texts like this are considered uh, patriarchal. There's six instructions given to women and only one given to men. And so clearly the Bible is just coming down hard on women because of the culture in which it was written, because it's antiquated, or because the biblical authors uh, were domineering and they let men off the hook. Uh, but frankly, if we were really to consider the historical context in which Peter was written, the fact that he's writing to women at all is a polemic against the argument that the Bible is hyper-patriarchal, that it ignores women and their needs and their relationship with the Lord. Peter speaks directly to them as image bearers, and that's an important thing to note. Uh, but at the risk of causing this text to die the death of a thousand qualifications, let me say this as we begin to look at what Peter says to wives in verses 1 through 6. I know that among us here there are women who have been abused in marriage. There are men and women here who both know and love people who have been and are even currently experiencing abuse in marriage. And many of us know of cases where even the Bible is used to support that abuse or to prevent a wife from getting the help that she needs. And let me be clear, Peter is not talking about wives who are in abusive relationships here. It's important that we don't make the text say that, although many churches and church leaders have done so. Peter is not saying that if you are being physically abused in your marriage, what you need to do is stay put, be quiet, and hope that one day in the midst of his abuse will be convicted by the fact that you aren't sticking up for yourself. Unfortunately, this is not uncommon teaching in some Christian circles where church leaders will cover up abuse out of fear of losing a big tither or because they're afraid of appearing too egalitarian or perhaps because they actually subscribe to some bad doctrine which says that women should remain in abusive relationships as though her biblical obligation is simply to endure harm without help. 
Oftentimes, cases of abuse are covered up by taking biblical principles, which are true, wives submit to your husbands, and prioritizing them over other biblical principles, which are true, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. It's to the shame of the church that women don't feel safe coming to their elders and ministers to find the help they need in dealing with an abusive husband, either because they've been ignored before or because they expect the Bible to be misapplied to their situation. And so let me say on behalf of the session and myself at Christ Covenant Church, if you are in an abusive relationship, come to us and tell us. It's our responsibility as leaders in the church to prioritize your spiritual and physical health and to ensure that church discipline is applied appropriately in cases where men are abusing their God-given authority. What does it mean to prioritize knowing Christ as most important? What's the text telling wives here, especially in verses 1 and 2? Well, the focus of this text is a woman whose husband is an unbeliever. Look at verse 1 with me. It says, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word. Peter, when he uses the phrase, obey the word, that's his way of saying that they're not Christians. They've not become obedient to the faith. They've not placed their trust in Christ and are not living in the way that God would have a Christian man live in the home. Peter's telling the wives of unbelieving husbands how they should respond to their husband's unbelief, not the wives of abusive husbands, how she should respond to her husband's abuse. And in the case of an unbelieving husband, Peter prioritizes that man's soul. Peter prioritizes the concern that her husband come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, doesn't he? And that's somewhat contrary to the way that we think when we look out for number one first. We want to look out for ourselves and ensure our own happiness. And Peter says, I understand that your situation is difficult, but remember what's at stake. The salvation of your husband's soul. Remember in Peter's day, uh, there would have been far more Christian women than men at least immediately coming to faith. Uh, we, we read in Acts of at least Lydia's house where she's there by the river doing her work and, and she has her heart open to believe the word and then she and her household, follow, her household follows after her. Many of the men would have been busy or occupied with other things and the same thing is true even today, isn't it? How many churches have a, a majority of women among their membership or husbands who come to church only because that's where his wife wants him to be on Sunday morning? So many, even perhaps some here, know what that's like to have an unbelieving husband, to live with someone who doesn't love the Lord and doesn't prioritize God's word or your soul. And Peter says, in spite of that, you need to prioritize his soul and his relationship with the Lord. In other words, there's something evangelistic about this, isn't there? That Peter's concern is that those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior would come to a saving knowledge of him. There's the story, most of us, or many of us, I should say, will know the story of Augustine's mother, Monica, 
and how she spent over 30 years praying faithfully and daily for her son that in the midst of his debauchery and, and adultery and sinful life that he would come to faith in Christ. And of course, he did. And he attributes to the fact that he eventually turned from his sinful ways unto the Lord to his mother's fervent prayers. But what many people don't know is that she prayed the same way for her husband for years and years as she herself came to faith before he did. And her conduct before her husband and her prayers for him were the catalyst God used to lead him to faith in Christ. And so the question that many of us and many of us men ought to ask is how many of us will find ourselves standing before the throne of God one day appropriately giving thanks for the work our wives did in seeing us get there. And so Peter wants wives of unbelieving husbands to remember the priority of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. And this is often missed. The focus in Christian counseling and in our own hearts and minds in the midst of a difficult marriage is often on making the husband a more satisfying husband, a more loving husband a better listener, a better communicator, a better provider, a better leader, a better whatever you're disappointed in with your husband. And that becomes the sole focus of Christian counseling in difficult marriages. How to make, and of course this goes both ways, but in, in the context of what we're dealing with here, how to make him a better husband. And those things are important in their own right. And we'll see that when we get to verse 7 as Peter addresses husbands directly. It's important that men are good communicators with their wives and do listen well to them and are concerned with their needs and do love them well and satisfy them to the best of our earthly abilities, leading them as we would be called to do in Christ. But that's not what Peter is talking about here. He's prioritizing knowing Christ. He's prioritizing salvation. According to Peter, it's far more important that your spouse have eternal life and the forgiveness of sins than that he be a better listener. I fear that we lose this focus as soon as we see the words be subject in verse 1 and submit in verse 5. But that's what Peter is talking about here. He's speaking to women not who wish their husbands were better husbands, although we do have a reasonable expectation that when a man comes to faith in Christ, he will become a better husband. But Peter is talking to women who long to see their husbands know the Lord like they do. So the question before us and before you ladies in particular is this. Does the salvation of the lost trump my own personal comfort, happiness, and ease in this life? As citizens of another world, of course, the answer should be yes. We should be willing to endure all the hardships of this life in light of the surpassing glory of what's to come, especially for the soul of another. Paul would say in Romans that he would wish to be damned himself if it meant the salvation of his own people who didn't know Christ. How much more ought we to endure hardship and silent honor if it might lead to the salvation of one we love? But it's in Scripture, this is here in Scripture, because this is often not our natural posture, is it? Rather, many women who live with unbelieving or even simply ungodly husbands try to win them to obedience through browbeating or through humiliating them or through usurping their God-given role or through generally treating them as they feel like they've been treated. 
or perhaps even worse, simply leaving the relationship altogether. And this is not biblical wisdom. <clears throat> this is the curse of sin rising up in your heart. It's not of the Lord. The Lord says wives who are married to unbelievers live with them in subjection that they may be one without a word when they see your respectful and pure conduct. The implication, of course, being that they were married prior to their conversion and this young lady comes to faith in Christ and her life is changed because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's as our confession, uh, assurance of pardon said earlier, she's been made dead to sin now and alive to righteousness. It's what Peter says in 1 Peter all throughout chapter 1, pursue holiness. So this woman becomes a believer in Christ and her life is changed. Her conduct becomes pure and honorable and her husband sees that reality, that change in her, and asks the question, what's happened? What's different? And that's the approach that Scripture would have us take in our relationship with unbelievers, in particularly in the home. Rather than browbeating and humiliating and, and trying to turn every conversation into a reason to condemn, but rather to allow the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart to change. Just like sin crouches at the door of your heart and wishes to master you, so too do many women seek to master their husbands for their own sake rather than to see him mastered by the Lord for his name's sake. Now it's important to note, again, I mentioned already the abuses that this text has experienced. First uh, Peter chapter 5, as well as Ephesians, excuse me, chapter 3, as well as Ephesians chapter 5, are speaking specifically to the wives of specific husbands. The text says, wives be subject to your own husband in verse 1, and again in verse 5, how the holy women who hoped in God would adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. Uh, this is important in light of some misapplications of this text in modern Christianity. <clears throat> some have argued that all women are to submit to all men, but that simply isn't supported by Scripture, is it? Rather, in many places here in Ephesians and Colossians, wives are called specifically to submit to their own husbands as head in their home. And in this case, it's an unbelieving husband, and the wife chooses to submit to him with the goal of his salvation. Now, that's interesting, the fact that Peter uses the word submit. Uh, he could have used the word obey, and Paul does certainly in Ephesians chapter 5, but his context is a bit different there. But the word submit here is used intentionally by Peter. Uh, obey has a rather strict sense of adherence to commands, right? Uh, I'm telling you to do this, and you must do that. Obey the specifics of what you've been told to do, whereas submit here in 1 Peter chapter 3 has a tone of qualified choice. Qualified choice. This is, this is the, the command given to a woman who desires to see her husband one to Christ. And so in recognition of his God-given authority in their home, and the significance of his soul, which is at stake, that she submits herself to him in a way that honors God. In Peter's day, many Christians were women, as I mentioned earlier, often coming to faith before their husbands. But Peter did not want these women to deny the Lord 
in submission to their husbands. So keep in mind the pantheistic nature of the early church's context where many families would have household gods aplenty. And so it was not uncommon in the Roman world for a family to adopt a new religious belief and to add to their uh, pantheon of, of gods another god, which would be fine. But the wife was not permitted to reject any of her husband's gods. And that was the problem. And we actually see this in some ancient writing from the first century and even before Christ, uh, where, where marriage manuals were written telling wives that it was a harmful thing to reject the gods of her husband. And so Peter is certainly not here telling the women, the wives of unbelieving husbands, to go on and keep worshiping false gods, is he? And so it's not a, an unqualified, blind obedience to every command a man might give which could cause a wife to sin. Of course that's not what's being said here. Uh, we could even take this even further. You know, Peter doesn't deal with children at all here. Uh, but children, while biblically obliged to obey their parents in the Lord and to honor their father and mother, are nowhere expected to sin because of their parents' instruction. And the same here is true for wives of unbelieving husbands. They're meant to submit in all things lawful to their husband as head of the home. Now, it's also noteworthy that the husband is considered the head of the home even when he's unbelieving. God's design for marriage predates the fall, and the relationships and roles between men and women in the home are rooted in that creation ordinance. Marriage has always been a covenantal relationship reflecting God's relationship with His people, and as such, it's rooted in God's design. And so wives of unbelieving husbands are not free to divorce because of his lack of faith or free to ignore because of his lack of faith, but are called to submit as he is the head of the home because Christ is the head of the church. And so marriage, both inside and outside the covenant community, are rooted in God's design and in his covenant. And it's been this way throughout the history of mankind. Peter briefly encourages wives of unbelieving husbands to look back in time throughout the history of faithful women for examples of those who lived this way in days gone past. Not unlike what the author to the Hebrews says to those of us who are struggling in this life as we walk by faith and not by sight, to look back and see the faithful cloud of witnesses of those who have gone before us. And so what does he say here in verses 5 and 6? speaking specifically about external adorning, but he says this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. Um, they hoped in God, it says. Peter says the wives of women in the past hoped in God, and the implication is that they didn't hope, they didn't place their hope for joy in having an earthly husband who would be the thing that provided ultimate satisfaction. But they hoped in God. They recognized that God and God alone is the one who brings ultimate satisfaction, and He alone can provide it. Women, if you would be counted among those whom Peter calls holy and hoping in God, he says to subject yourselves to your husband, even if he's not 
a believer, even if he's not walking faithfully with Christ, so that he might come to salvation and so that you might be counted as pleasing in God's sight. That's a tough word, isn't it? I don't deny that. I don't stand up here and say it as though there's not real difficult implications of wives submitting to difficult or unbelieving husbands. But Peter says this has been the way of those like Sarah who submitted to Abraham. And she was called holy in light of her obedience. If you fear the Lord, look at verse 6. It says, if you are her children, Sarah, obeying Abraham, calling him Lord, if you're like her, you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And I think what Peter means when he says you don't fear anything that's frightening is this command to submit to unbelieving husbands can be frightening. It can be scary to place yourself under the authority, to willingly subject yourself to the authority of someone who might abuse that authority. Well, that's just as true in a Christian home as it is outside of it, isn't it? Men, we know that that's true. How many of us have perfectly exercised our biblical headship in the home? Never treating our wives unkindly or without compassion. Never provoking our children to wrath or antagonizing them. Of course we fail, and so it's frightening for a woman, whether in a a fully believing home or in a divided home, to subject herself to that headship. And Peter says, but you don't have anything to fear because you fear God. And if God is for you, then what knuckle-headed husband can be against you? If God is on your side and you're walking in obedience to Him, then you have nothing to fear You don't have to fear being cheated out of a happy life, cheated out of spiritual leadership, cheated out of what you deserve, but rather you know because of who God is and the promises that he's made to you that your eternal joy is guaranteed and that Christ is your spiritual head and that you actually won't get what you deserve because Christ got what you deserved on the cross and instead you'll get what he deserves. Well, there's a few wrong ways to try to win your unbelieving husband, isn't there? Peter's mentioned a couple of them, uh, and by implication, nagging and arguing and browbeating and humiliating and trying to win them with a word, trying to argue them into the kingdom. But rather, your respectful and pure conduct is what he encourages us with in verses 1 and 2. But now he gives a little bit of a different angle. In verses 3 through 6, he says that women of these unbelieving and unfaithful, faithful to God, that is, husbands, shouldn't prioritize external beauty, which might be attractive in man's sight, but rather should prioritize soul beauty, which is precious in God's sight. On top of instructing wives to show honor to their unbelieving husbands for their spiritual good, he says that they should take care of their own spiritual good as well by being concerned with matters of the heart. In verses 3 and 4, Peter challenges not only our contemporary cultural norms of external beauty, but his contextual norms of external beauty as well. He mentions a couple of them, braided hair, gold jewelry, uh, fancy clothes and the things that you wear, adorning yourself with external accoutrements, which are designed to either attract men or establish your own status in the world. 
Did you know that in 2018, Americans spent over $89 billion on cosmetic products? And of course, that doesn't only mean women. Uh, many men uh, are brushing uh, black back into their mustache and beard on a regular basis and covering up their uh, pimpled face just as much as any women are. $89 billion in cosmetic products. That says that's nothing to speak of clothing, jewelry, and any other ways that we try to adorn ourselves externally. Now, Peter, of course, is not saying that you should just, you know, who cares what you look like, do whatever you want. You know, the sort of the old joke, well, married now, time to let it go, time to buy a bunch of sweatpants, because now I'm married. Uh, that's not what Peter's saying. He's not encouraging us to not be concerned about that, but rather not to be concerned about that. Peter does not want women to not braid their hair. He does not mean that you shouldn't have jewelry, and he certainly doesn't mean don't wear clothes. If we were to interpret this very woodenly, we'd have to reach that conclusion. Rather, Peter is talking to the woman who would seek to find hope in life by making herself more attractive, perhaps to keep her husband's interest, perhaps to attract the interest of someone else, or perhaps to feel satisfied and fulfilled in light of her less than satisfactory marriage. He's not simply shifting from women of unbelieving husbands to women who are sort of self-centered. He's simply saying that in light of the fact that your marriage might not be satisfying, don't go pursuing satisfaction over here in making yourself as beautiful as you can. Rather, seek to find your hope in God. Isn't that what he said in verse 6? This is a threat today as much as it would have been in Peter's day. Women who feel let down in the home decide to self-actualize by pursuing all manner of external and earthly standards of beauty. If I have a certain shaped body, a certain style of clothing, a certain style of hair or makeup, then I'll feel happy and satisfied and beautiful, beautiful and desirous and precious. But Peter says that what is precious in God's sight is different than what's precious in man's sight. Just like in 1 Samuel, we know that God looks on the heart rather than on the external appearance of a person, doesn't he? Women and men, I suppose here, do you spend more time on your external beauty or your internal beauty? Pursuing a particular shape or design or cultivating a gentle and quiet spirit? There's something inherently unbiblical about a person who spends more time concerned with the outside than with the inside. We become the proverbial whitewashed sepulcher. The outside's all pretty and painted, and the inside is just full of dead bones. Peter tells women in this case to pursue a gentle and quiet spirit. Being gentle means being humble rather than harsh and self-interested. And that lends itself to what we said earlier about being concerned with the salvation of your unbelieving spouse rather than yourself in that case. Being quiet in spirit, really what Peter means is to be peacemaking, to be the sort of wife who turns away the harsh words of her husband by her calming demeanor. And this is counter, isn't it, to the sort of red bandana-wearing, overall-clad woman flexing on the poster 
Peter's instruction to holy women whose hope is in God is not to pursue the secular feminist's ideal that says, I am woman, hear me roar, but rather I am godly, see me in quiet contentment that Christ is Lord. I am holy, see my character and my heart and my humility and my willing subjection to the Lord's authority. Imagine the impact this would have, not just on husbands and wives, but on the children of these parents who witness this sort of example and see it said. Imagine the impact it would have on our culture as we fight back against the day's uh, suggestions that there are no roles in the home and that the best kind of woman is, woman is one who's just like a man or perhaps used to be one. And what's wonderful about this this idea that women shouldn't need to be concerned with external adorning in order to win their husband's affection or attraction is the same as true with regards to our relationship to God, isn't it? Aren't you so pleased to know that we don't need to impress God with our appearance? That we don't have to impress Him with our righteousness and our external works of the law? That we don't keep God's affection or earn God's affection by being those who look Christian and act religious and pursue our own righteousness, but rather Christ loves us because he's put his spirit in us. And that's what God sees when he sees his children. Well, lastly, as Peter has called us to prioritize knowing Christ is paramount, and prioritize what's beautiful in God's sight rather than man's, he says that we should prioritize the equality of our standing before the Lord in the home. And in this case now, he speaks to husbands, men. Scripture would have us prioritize the equality of our wives' relationships with God. Many come to texts such as this and hear submit and subject and respect and think that the Bible is backwards and antiquated and, and counter to what our culture says. How dare Peter call women the weaker vessel? How offensive to our modern sensibilities and awareness. But we miss the point of verse 7 if all we see is the weaker vessel. Likewise, he says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are joint heirs with you of the grace of life. Peter says, show honor. That our wives are co-equal in the inheritance of God. That man's eternity does not look better than woman's eternity. But that together we will share in the glory of heaven around the throne of God forever. Peter's words to men are essentially this. This is what Peter's saying, husbands. He says, show honor to your woman as the weaker vessel because they are joint heirs with you in the grace of life. In other words, men, you have most likely the physical ability to domineer your wife, to control your wife, to make her submit, to force her to obey. But don't do that. That's what many people do, and many people abuse this text into saying that. But just because you're physically larger and physically stronger and your wife is physically a weaker vessel, such as it were, you don't have the permission by God or the authority to domineer her or control her. Rather, honor her. To honor your wife 
A godly husband ought to take the words submit, or excuse me, ought to make the words submit and honor and obey easy to follow. He shouldn't hinder his wife's ability to obey the Lord by his own foolishness and abusive behavior. There's a reason why so many people think the Bible is backwards on matters of gender and roles in marriage, and it's because so many men have given those people a reason to think this. When we abuse our God-given authority or our physical ability by abusing our wives or subjecting them to poor headship, we bring God's design for marriage into question, don't we? If men were Christ-like in their application of their biblical authority and their role in marriage, this passage would not be controversial, nor would the Christian view of marriage. Man, look what it says again with me at the beginning of verse 7. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. I think there's a, a few implications of this that are worth dealing with as we wrap this up. First of all, it says live with your wife. And there's a, a sort of underlying sense that he has in mind here the intimacy that marriage should contain. Sort of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where he says, men, you don't own your own bodies, but your wives do, and they have a reasonable expectation to the conjugal rights of covenant relationship and marriage. Live with your wives. Intimacy is a part of marriage, and it's a part of a healthy marriage. And it's so unfortunate, I can't begin to tell you how many times I've counseled couples in marriage who are struggling, who are living in separate bedrooms, separate parts of the house. One celebrity just recently published a memoir who said that she and her husband have been living in separate homes for seven years now, but they won't get divorced because they want to keep giving it a go. You're not really giving it a go if you're living separately from one another, are you? Intimacy and living together with your spouse is a particular part of our marriage responsibility. And he says, husbands, live with your wives. And then he says this, in an understanding way. Now, I'm so thankful that what Peter did not say is men understand women. Uh, how many men have said this, I just don't understand women? That's fine. Neither do the rest of us. And we're not obliged to. Rather, you're obliged to understand your wife. Not how all women think and how all women work and how all women uh, act and behave and what they all want, but what your wife is like. Men, live with your wife in a way that knows her, that understands her. And that means knowing your wife in all the aspects of her being, her life and her character. What are her loves, her desires, her fears, her wants, her quirks? Her gifts and strengths and her weaknesses, her needs, her concerns, her aspirations and hopes and experiences. It means that godly husbands are students of their wives. And it's when men fail to be students of their wives that they begin to live with them in a sinful or abusive or harsh manner. And all of us need to be reminded that marriage is a union between two sinful people. But Peter's instruction here to wives does not 
simply say, wives, your husbands are sinful, so just ignore that part. Rather, he says that their souls are important, so care for that part. And your souls are important too, so look out for your own internal adorning, the heart being uh, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And men, your wives, they're sinful too, and you need to live with them in an understanding way, recognizing that they need your tender care because they're fellow heirs of the grace of life. Do you realize, men, that your wives bear the exact same image of God that you do? That one of you is not better or more important or more special in God's sight than the other? And of course, we understand how to live this way by looking to Christ, don't we? Christ is our heavenly husband. He knows his sheep. He loves us tenderly. He is compassionate. He knows us and understands us and treats us well. And we as his bride are called to submit to him even when it goes against our flesh, perhaps especially when it does. He knows what's best for us. And he has demonstrated his love for us on the cross. So wives, pursue inner beauty. Submit to your husbands in peaceable humility in hopes that they will respond to your character and conduct with faith and faithfulness. And husbands, live with your wives in the same manner that Christ lives with you, remembering that our wives are co-equals in the grace of life and made in God's image. And the Lord loves them far more than you do, and he has prepared a place for them alongside of you in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and its clear and plain biblical instruction for marriage, would you help us all, husbands and wives alike, to remember, to look to Christ and his sacrificial love for the church and our call to submit to him as Lord in our homes and in our relationships with our spouses. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we conclude our time of worship. We'll sing our hymn of response. From the Trinity Hymnal, number 634, Sweet Hour of Prayer. Let's worship God together. Mm-hmm.